This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, the Starfleet rules on Tribbles are very straightforward. No pets. Hello everyone, my name is Gapwin. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi critique cute creature show. Yeah, it's fluffy today. I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we watched an absolute classic, probably one of the best and best remembered episodes of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Star Trek the original series, The Trouble with Tribbles. Also referenced in Futurama and later half remade in Deep Space Nine, made fun of in the weird short called Roddenberry on Patrol, <laughs> which they sold at cons for a while. I've heard of that. It's fun. I have the DVD somewhere. Nice. Yes, the, the classic, these fuzzball things make better characters than any of the actual characters. <laughs> and they're more adorable too and you just want to hold them and listen to them purr at you and then you're and then you're addicted and yeah this episode was written by a guy named david gerald who is known for writing this episode of star trek and um yeah <laughs> he won some awards for a novel that he wrote called the martian child which was also later adapted into a movie more than one thing He's done a funny. couple other uh, uh, episodes of Star Trek, too. Yes, he submitted a ton of episodes. In fact, an interesting thing that I found on him was that he submitted a lot of story ideas to both original series and Next Generation, and one of the rejected Next Generation episodes, he tried to write in gay characters into the story. Yay! So the guy who wrote Trouble with Tribbles was writing stuff that was too edgy for 90s-era Star Trek. <laughs> good on him yeah which is just great like would you expect the trouble with tribbles guy to be writing like edgy gay content in the 90s not really no um though, though I, I do have to give him one ding uh he wrote the episode believers on babylon 5 which was only okay oh no <laughs> uh it's one of my least favorite episodes of the series, but it's because, you know, it's kind of boring. Anyway. <laughs> Guest starring this week, we have William Campbell, who played Captain Koloth. We've Koloth. seen him before playing Trelane on the Squire of Gothos. And I suspect we'll see him again eventually. We will. Also playing Captain Koloth. Yes. <laughs> I never actually realized that the there's one episode of Deep Space Nine where three old Klingons show up. And every mm-hmm. single one of them appeared in original series and is the same act. Yep. <laughs> yeah, just bring them back. You put, you know, the more modern uh, Klingon makeup on, then here you go. It's just kind of fun. At this time period, he was known for being a uh, series guest star in a variety of things and a lot of B-movies. Yes. Uh, he was in something called Battle Cry, for instance. Sure. Never never heard of it. This is the 50s. <laughs> We also have Stanley Adams, who played Cyrano Jones, who also appeared in Breakfast at Tiffany's, as well as a lot of contemporary shows, and was apparently a fairly well-known guest star of the era. So we're of guest stars of guest stars uh, sort of episode here. Yes. He's, he's one of those characters that you look at and go, this looks like 
some comedian I should know, but then it turns out that he just looks like a lot of people who were comedians from that era. Yep. Yeah, so a little, more, a little bit more around the face, is sort of this big smile thing going on. Yeah, you'd expect to be on a light night TV show or something like that. William Charlotte is playing Undersecretary Barris, who was, he was a well-known character actor who appeared in a lot of contemporary shows and movies and was even working up into the 2010s. Yeah. Um, he's passed away now, though. Yes, unfortunately. And finally, we have Charlie Brill, who played R. Darvin. His first name is weird. They don't say it very much. <laughs> he is still working as a voice actor, and uh, later in the DS9 episode, he reprised this role at playing an older Darvin. Yeah, so we'll see him again, too. <laughs> also, apparently, one of his weird little trivia claim to fames is that he was on the episode of The Ed Sullivan Show that the Beatles first appeared on doing sketch comedy before they came on. Nice. <laughs> but that's the only thing anyone remembers about Ed Sullivan, is that the Beatles were on it that one time. Yeah, and I guess now we know he was on that, too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very important episode of The Ed Sullivan Show that was. I gotta say that I'm definitely biased because this is one episode that, like, my mom introduced me to Star Trek with this episode, and it's probably the one I've seen the most often of the original series. Yeah, probably so, similar, uh, similar here as far as, uh, you know, frequency, so. I do, I am biased, but it's one of the best written episodes. Mm-hmm. Just purely in terms of, like, character interaction. The plot doesn't make a lot of sense and happens mostly by happenstance, but the actual jokes and character interaction and way everyone behaves on this episode is just written miles above anything else we've seen. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of the, the plot's sort of just kind of happening. It's not quite a comedy of errors because the errors end up coming, to, coming uh, around to sort of help things out. But uh, it is sort of... It's it's there as sort of background to a degree. Well, it is kind of a comedy of errors. I, it kind of would remind me of something like The Importance of Being Earnest, where it's a comedy of errors, but the errors all work out fine. Yeah. Now, I've just got to say, right, right before we jump into the synopsis, most of the really good stuff in this episode is little comedy bits and character interactions and back and forth that, like, would make a synopsis incredibly clunky and confusing to read. Yeah, so uh, go watch the episode yourselves, guys. Yeah, go watch it. I'm going to do a you know plot synopsis, which is not going to be as funny or interesting as the episode because the like bare-bones plot itself is just kind of there. And I'll, I'll try my, uh, my regular uh, introductions. Uh, if you need me to read a captain's log note here, uh, I got a few. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we join the Enterprise en route to Space Station K-7, which is an outpost near the Klingon border. K-7? Uh-oh, checkmate. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to. Chekhov makes a reference that the Klingons are close enough to smell them, and then Spock goes, you can't smell stuff in space, stupid, but apparently you can hear things in space, so who knows what's going yeah. on. Uh, in Red Dwarf, they uh, had uh, the cat who could smell things through space, but maybe maybe Chekhov's part cat. Ah, magic space cat. Yes. <laughs> Spock explains the history of the Quadrant, which is a disputed area claimed by both the Federation and the Klingon Empire. 
The conflict centers on a planet called Sherman's Planet. Hmm. And according to a treaty, one side or the other must be able to prove that they are the best people to develop Sherman's Planet quickly and efficiently. uh, In fact, I think some part of the episode they mentioned the Organians were part of that treaty and uh, all that business we've already seen, in fact. Yeah, the Organians, I guess, own it, and then they're going to give it to whoever can develop it. I I sort of figured that it was sort of a, you know, all right, you guys have conflicts here where we want you to not fight, but we'll help you, like, resolve some of this issue here. So, yeah, so I didn't really see them, the Organians as having ownership, more trying to help them settle things here. Possibly. They don't really go into a lot of detail. Just as they're finishing up their explanations, they pick up a Priority 1 distress call from Space Station K-7, which is apparently the all-important disaster drop-everything-and-come-help distress call. Oh, no! The Enterprise approaches the station prepared for battle but detects no hostile ships, and the station administrator, Lurie, apologizes and tells them that he can explain if they just come on board and have a meeting. Yeah, sorry, we sat on the button. On the station, Kirk meets Barris, who is the Federation Undersecretary responsible for agriculture in the region, which is incredibly important because the agriculture on Sherman's planet is going to be one of the things that helps decide who gets it in the treaty. Hmm. So, uh, Mr. Plant Guy is going to win us this planet. Excellent. All right, Mr. Barris, uh, what's up? What's going on here? We also meet his assistant, Arn Darvin. And Barris is the one who sent the distress call in order to summon guards for his grain stores. Um, so not having guards was the emergency? Apparently. Huh. This quadrotriticale is a hybrid grain that was the only thing that humans will be able to grow on Sherman's planet. This also introduces the running joke that everyone in the universe has heard of this stuff except for Kirk. <laughs> Kirk, you, you and your piles of books back at Starfleet Academy didn't teach you anything about agriculture while everyone else was taking that elective because it was easy. I also kind of like that this is the long-running Star Trek trend of taking a thing that exists and adding a weird word to the beginning of it to make it a new thing. Yes, uh, there's uh, Triticale uh, is a thing, but Quadraversion is, doesn't exist. So Yes, we have Triticale, which is a hybrid grain of rye and wheat which i would try but i don't know where to find mostly used as like a uh, feed for like uh, cows and things like that so you might, might not be very good for you it's hard to know but it's apparently hardy hooray kirk is incredulous that barris used a priority distress call for him to summon a few security guards and only surprise and only supplies him two guards as a sign of immense disrespect drag my ass out here and demand guards and freak me out and get everyone really stressed out and abuse your power of emergency powers of course i'm only going to give you two guards dude come on get real he also approves shore leave for his crew oh that's useful which it's a station so not a shore you know, you could still get you a chance to relax and stretch your legs and look at something other than the gray walls of the enterprise you know look at the gray walls of the space station also, apparently, the station has a gray-walled bar. Yay! <laughs> where we see Spock conferring with Kirk that, you know, not taking the Klingons seriously might be a bad idea, even if the guy who's in charge of guarding the grain is kind of an asshole. Spock might have a point, honestly. He and Kirk leave just as Ahura, Chekhov, and a man named Cyrano Jones enter the bar. 
Jones is trying to sell the barman some exotic thingy-mabobs and trinkets that he has no interest in, but eventually Jones produces a small fuzzy ball that purrs, and Ahura is immediately infatuated with it. Ahura loves kittens, so this is pretty cool. This leads the barman to negotiate buying some of these tribbles, but before he can sell one to Ahura for a grossly inflated price, Jones decides to give her one for free, claiming that it will seed interest in the creatures amongst the Enterprise crew. This seems like a sound marketing technique. I hope it doesn't go horribly wrong. Back on the ship, Kirk is receiving messages that is ordering him to stop being belligerent and just help Barris already. Like, chill out, dude. <laughs> when suddenly a Klingon battlecruiser approaches the station. Kirk orders red alert, but Lurie contacts him telling him that the Klingons are actually fine and the Captain Koloth is just bored and wants to all meet up. Um, fire phasers anyway, just in case. They maybe should. I mean... <laughs> Koloth claims that the Klingons have no interest other than to take shore leave on the station. He makes kind of a crude joke gesture that I missed the first, like, five times I watched this episode and only caught this time. I was like, oh, really? They had to put that in? Yeah. <laughs> Kirk allows small groups of Klingons to take leave, and he and Koloth are openly very Cold War-y hostile to each other. Hmm, I don't think they get along very well there. Hmm. We get a scene where Kirk goes into the rec room, talks to Scotty about how he enjoys reading technical journals instead of taking shore leave, and Ohura has a lot of tribbles. A lot of tribbles, like piles of tribbles. The one she got from Jones apparently had babies. Hmm. They spawned everywhere. You? Did you clean up the mess at least? McCoy takes one to try to figure out what on earth it is. And Spock is briefly lured into a hypnotic trance by its purring. Even uh, Vulcans are not immune to their allure. Oh, they're too cute and purry. The calming effect on all sentient life. Finally, every crew member in the room decides to just grab a Tribble and runs. Oh, so long, Ahura. We have Tribbles of our own now. We don't have to hang out with you anymore. Oh. All my Tribbles. <laughs> Later on, after another argument with Barris, Kirk goes to sick bay with a headache that he's gotten from being mean to a Federation official. There's some management issues going on here. He's like, I want to get my head looked at so I don't have to deal with this crap anymore, maybe for a little bit, and at least not to be in much pain. Now, what's up, McCoy? In there, McCoy has even more tribbles. Hmm, this is starting to sound a little spooky to me. He says that... More than half of a Tribble's metabolism seems to be made up of reproductive organs. Wait, so they're constantly getting freaky? If you feed a Tribble, you'll get lots of little Tribbles. Hmm. I just have to admit, this is my favorite line in the entire thing. <laughs> Do you know what you get if you feed a Tribble too much? And Kirk says, <laughs> a fat Tribble. <laughs> they just wrote this so well. Kirk seems very amused by this incredibly fast-breeding creature that's on his very, very small spaceship. Yeah, we have limited uh, room and supplies. Uh, hopefully this doesn't get out of hand. Kirk leaves to oversee the crew going on shore leave and asks Scotty to go to the station in order to keep an eye on things with the Klingons. Well, Scotty, I uh, hope you're cool with keeping an eye on the Klingons as well as you are on keeping an eye on the engines and keep a cool head and everything's going to be great. Scotty, Chekhov, and a few other crewmen are stationed at the bar with lots of Klingons. Jones is continuing to sell everyone Tribbles and no one's interested. He notices that the Tribbles get a very bad reaction from the Klingons. They go, ah, 
Maybe the uh, Tribbles are just really, really, really excited. Yeah, they love Klingon so much that they scream. <laughs> it's, oh my god, oh my god, Klingons, yeah! <laughs> and we just don't understand them. He offers to trade the barman Tribbles for a drink, but the barman starts pulling Tribbles out from behind the bar, because he's got too many of the dang things. It's a very amusing sort of, do-do-do, pull one out, pull one out, pull another one out, pull another one out. <laughs> Start piling them up. Scotty and Chekhov discuss the attributes of vodka versus scotch when the Klingon commander enters, and seeing the crew there begins to insult Kirk. But Kirk's not here. Hmm. I guess no one has to carry that. Scotty keeps Chekhov and the others calm as the Klingon insults their captain, but then the Klingon calls the Enterprise a garbage scow, at which point Scotty very slowly and deliberately stands up and punches the Klingon in the face. Well, I, I guess we know what uh, pisses off Scotty, then. This starts a very comedic bar fight, where we continue cutting between men fighting, including Chekhov failing to punch a very large Klingon repeatedly, and <laughs> Jones making himself lots and lots of drinks at the bar. And, you know, drinking some of them, but mostly trying to get out of there without getting too much roughed up. Eventually, the barman and several security officers enter and stop the fight. And Jones is drinking. Yep. <laughs> Kirk questions the men, but no one will tell him what happened to protect Scotty. He confines them all to quarters and then questions Scotty alone, who tells him that it was, in fact, him who started the fight. Uh, Kirk is openly disappointed that he didn't start a fight about him, but waited until they insulted the ship. <laughs> it's like, oh, you, you're not going to protect my honor? Drat, oh, I guess you don't respect me enough or love me enough or whatever. But you love the Enterprise, so I guess that's pretty good. He confines Scotty to quarters as well, but he's not very upset about this because it'll give him a chance to catch up on his reading. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, aye, aye, Captain. <laughs> At this point, Tribbles have basically taken over the ship. They're all over sick bay, they're in the corridor, and they're on every surface of the bridge. Including, like, the walls. Barris and Darwin accuse Jones of being a Klingon agent. But this doesn't really go anywhere, and Kirk returns to his ship. Also, I'd kind of forgotten, but this entire episode, everyone is calling them Klingons. Yep, Klingons. It's like it's it's not even just like one character says it weird. Every single person says Klingon. Well, previous episodes they've been Klingons, and they will continue to be Klingons later. Yes. Uh, maybe we're like a, a parallel universe for this episode. <laughs> Kaloth leads a special faction of Klingon raiders. Yes. <laughs> that are part of the Klingon Empire. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're, they're like, uh, you know, because uh, we find out in later series that Klingons are sort of a semi feudal sort of society. Maybe his, I don't know, uh, the province he's in charge of is the Klingon province. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Koloth, son of Klingon. <laughs> of the Klingon Empire. Kirk returns to the Enterprise where they find Tribbles in the food. Uh-oh. Scotty says that they probably got in through the air vents. And then Kirk goes, well, dang, there's air vents on the station. And there's grain on the station with air vents. Yes, that quadrilocaline or whatever stuff is. You know, the Tribbles might have gotten to it. Oh, no. Kirk returns to the station and opens an overhead compartment to check on the grain storage and is immediately buried in Tribbles. Um, in fact, it's almost like somebody's throwing them uh, down at him from up above. Yeah, they keep like 
falling down on his head and making squeaky noises. Yep. <laughs> like one of those hammers you get at the fun fair. Squeak, squeak, squeak. Ferris is somewhat understandably annoyed that the Tribbles ate all of his grain stores that he told Kirk to guard. Well, it's almost like the guards were guarding the front door, but not the air vents. Hmm. McCoy enters just in time to tell them that if they stop feeding the Tribbles, they're going to stop breeding. So I guess we just have to not have food around then. Okay. Then Spock notices that several of the Tribbles are dead. McCoy <gasps> confirms that they have all died from poison that the grain's been laced with. Oh no, that, wait, wait, the, po- the grain was poisoned? Someone was trying to murder these Tribbles via poisoned grain? Oh no, what, what kind of monster would do this? They go to Larry's office to figure out what's going on. Kirk berates Jones for, you know, bringing dangerous, super fast breeding Tribble things on board. Yep. Seems like a bad idea, Jones. Koloth and Barris want to yell at Kirk, Koloth for treating the Klingons badly, and Barris for getting the grain eaten. And poisoned. Yeah. <laughs> just so it's clear, the, the poisoned grain was not because they are trying to murder the Tribbles. I just said that because of a joke. <laughs> Koloth is bothered by the Tribbles, and they try to take them out of the room when Darvin enters, and the Tribbles freak out. They're excited about Darwin too. Wait a moment. He's not. He's not. He looks like a human. What's up? Jones says the only time he saw Tribbles act like that was when they encountered Klingons at the bar. McCoy scans Darwin and finds that his organs are all in the wrong place and he's in fact a Klingon agent. Dun dun dun. He was physically altered to appear human, which at the time means white person makeup, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's it's so so. Do you want me to get dressed up like a sort of a, a, a comfortable racist caricature? No, in fact, you're a, a secret agent, so you just look like all the other white actors. Yeah, he trims his beard and takes off the brown face makeup, and oh my god, he looks just like a human. Oh man, Star Trek! Now, because of pure luck, Kirk has found himself with the upper hand because now Koloth's been caught with an agent and Barris has been caught with his assistant being an agent. So, Kirk, how are you going to handle this here, eh? Ah, Kirk gets upset at Barris for being a jerk and claims that he was right all along. He also threatens Jones with a long prison term for transporting dangerous animals, but tells him that if he picks up every Tribble on the station, they'll let him go free, but this task will take about 18 years. Which is better than being in prison for 20 years. (laughs) I guess that means he gets to live for free on the space station because they won't let him leave. (laughs) That's true. Back on the ship, all the Tribbles are gone. No one wants to tell Kirk where they went until he finally gets Scotty to admit that they beamed them all over to the Klingon ship. Where there'll be no Tribble at all. <laughs> this was our closing joke, apparently. Yes. The, uh, I think this is the beginning of the, uh, the Klingon Holy Wars versus the, uh, the Tribble Menace. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. I Didn't think... work out. But everyone's just like, oh, ha, 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 ha. You know the Klingons are going to kill them. <laughs> all of them. Because they hate them. <laughs> yeah. And what else? What are you even going to do? With the, like, thousands and thousands of Tribbles that are on the space station. Like, transport them back to whatever home planet they came from? I guess. You know, uh, or, uh, I don't know, uh, get some uh, in, uh, crazy predators that'll eat them all, like, from their home planet. That's apparently how they uh, keep their numbers uh, down there, so. 
Well, according to Wikipedia, this episode was somewhat loosely based on a short story called Pigs is Pigs, mm-hmm. where a racist train operator wants to charge livestock rates for guinea pigs because guinea is an old-timey slur for Italians. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh. And then the guinea pigs breed too much, and he's forced to go, well, now all livestock gets the cheap pet rate. It's... I haven't read the actual text of it, but I was discussing this with someone who like noticed that in the synopsis they have on Wikipedia is like, well, that sounds bad. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think uh, bad might be an understatement, honestly, but this episode's not particularly racist. So that's a good change. Yeah, just, just the usual stuff with TOS Klingons there, but you know, yeah, but gone to the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was hilarious. Like, this episode's better written than most of them. I also figured out the thing that I like most about it, which is that Kirk stops being the invincible, capable man trope and becomes the butt of a lot of the jokes. Yes. <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on. He's annoyed at the Tribbles, but he's, like, kind of indifferent to them. He's doing everything wrong when you hit, like, the the stuff with the administrator like stuff works out because of random happenstance but like he did everything wrong and people actually call him out for it and he's kind of the butt of the joke yeah he's uh he he has his humanity restored for this episode he's no longer the uh, the ideal superman and why do you know if you make your character kind of human it goes better yeah it's more interesting You know, uh, you, you, you have someone who makes mistakes and can learn from them, for instance, and can also can provide amusement for when you, they, they run into trouble and suddenly have tribbles thrown on their head. I wonder who was throwing those tribbles. Hmm. I wonder if we'll ever find that out. Yeah, it's going to, I liked how they kept that detail in when they did the remake in DS9. Yep. <laughs> They went through so much trouble for that DS9 episode. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of fun uh, you know, knowing that later episode and, uh, and watching this one again. It's like, yeah, they, you know, this is the lineup where this character is replaced by somebody else in that episode. <laughs> and yeah, I got them in like a two set video pack way back that came with a triple. Nice. <laughs> Wait a moment. Do you ha- how, just... many do you, how many triples do you have now? <laughs> I never fed it. Okay, good. <laughs> Just keep it it's in its a uh, hermetically sealed uh, environment and uh, and uh, limit its its fe- uh, feeding uh, cycle so it uh, doesn't reproduce. There you go. So this episode really had very little in the way of message. So True. Well, but, but there are things we can talk about. Yeah. I was just thinking like we I try to look into the philosophy and what the show is trying to say about the human experience as we interact with stuff in the future. This is mostly about how invasive species are bad. Yeah, well, to, you know, to put it lightly. <laughs> well, I did get a few anecdotes with, with things like that because it's something that comes up in research on like a project I help with that has to do with birds. And invasive species come up all the dang time with birds. They just get everywhere. You- they fly around, and then you're like, suddenly, hey, there's, there's birds on my house. Sometimes. Sometimes it goes the other way. It's just weird. So for people who aren't as familiar, an invasive species is just a generalized name for any species of animal that 
has been brought into a different environment than the one that it existed in originally and then gets out and starts breeding and living in that new environment. And it's usually bad because animals tend to have certain adaptations and defense mechanisms that have to do with the predators and conditions in their original environment. And when they get into an environment that doesn't have those, they usually kind of breed out of control. Yeah. So you get sort of in your general environment a situation where there's uh, sort of ecological niches for various uh, critters and things like that. And, you know, there's, there's the food chain and things like that. So it's well established. But when you have something that's very sort of alien to that uh, present system where the predators present aren't going to be eating that new creature and those, that new creature is able to outcompete uh, the things that are already present, suddenly you got a, re- a situation where all the resources are being taken over by the new invasive species and you're killing off a lot of the local stuff. Yeah, and this becomes a very weird problem depending on what you're dealing with. Like I can, one of the best examples that you can point to for how this can work with an invasive animal is European starlings, which if people aren't as familiar with birds, they are a medium-sized black bird with a very, very pointy beak and often have white spots. And they're, they're an incredibly common bird to find in North America. So their uh, they're, they're, record is kind of spotty, though. Yeah. <laughs> depending on what part of the of the u.s like if you're in the united states and you look outside uh depending on the time of year odds are you will see a european starling especially if you live in the eastern part of the country so they're just they are everywhere but we're in north america why are they called european starlings because they were brought to north america from england by a guy who wanted to introduce every bird that was ever mentioned in a Shakespearean play. Mm. That was his entire motivation. Uh, he, brought, he brought a lot of different birds over. Uh, most of them did not do well in a North American environment. Like, so that's why we don't have like bullfinches, for example. But in 1890, he released 60... European starlings in Central Park in the middle of Manhattan. And then the next year he introduced another 40. There are at present an estimated 200 million. So, uh, yeah, they've had um, some opportunity to um, to uh, reproduce and kind of dominate. They spread across the entire continent and they are what's called a cavity nesting bird, which means they find natural holes in trees and logs and cliff faces and things and the problem is they displace other cavity nesting birds get out of here uh, local birds this is my place now yeah and they are better at doing that than some american birds american birds did not develop the abilities to deal with having to compete with a european bird like this and they've taken over a lot of habitats But you hit an interesting problem with this kind of thing because you normally go something like, well, invasive species are bad and we should remove them so that the local environment can recover, which is something they've done like in the Galapagos. They introduced goats to the Galapagos Islands several years ago. And recently there's been this big effort to try to remove the goats from the Galapagos because they are devastating the local wildlife. They did the same thing 
at Grand Canyon National Park in the early 1900s with the burrow populations that had been introduced there when they were mining. Uh, hmm. But the longer an animal is invasive, the more it kind of takes over an ecological niche. And right now, while it would be basically impossible to try to remove European starlings from North America because there's just too many over too wide of an area, They've also taken on an ecological niche of some of the bird species that they pushed out. So there's this ongoing debate when you hit invasive species of how much damage are you going to do by removing them as opposed to leaving them there and letting the environment change around them and how much is the environment changing around them going to you know, disrupt things so that you actually have to remove them. So to a certain degree with this particular case, it's kind of too late in some areas and Maybe it's less so in others, but if you try to remove them from the one area, uh, you'd have to remove them from all, all areas, and that will cause issues. So it's kind of a weird thing that you have to think of with the ecological matters on this kind of thing, because you normally just want to go, well, invasive species, it's bad, we need to get them out of there. Mm -hmm. Now, this the tri thing with the tribbles really reminded me of this kind of thing that you get with cats, which... Case. So... There are two things that kill more birds than all other human-caused bird deaths and animal deaths combined. And those Heavy metal in cats. Well, window strikes in cats. Oh, okay. Pretty close. <laughs> yeah, cats, outdoor cats, are like the number one ecological threat to most native wildlife in North America. I don't know about Europe. I think it's similar. Uh, the, I guess, European-style domesticated uh, felines uh, are a little bit newer to the North America, but I'm not entirely sure on that. I'm kind of... Yeah, they are. There's this story from the 1890s where uh, there's this place called Stevens Island, which is out near, like, uh, New Zealand. Uh, mm -hmm. and they built a lighthouse there because it was a dangerous part of the ocean. And a lighthouse needs a lighthouse keeper. And the lighthouse keeper brought their cat. And the cat was pregnant. And the cat had kittens. And it started a whole cat population on this island. And this one cat, who was named Tibbles, killed an entire species of wren that was only native to this island. Tibbles, what'd you do? Yes. Bad kid. So one cat being introduced to this one island caused an entire bird species to go extinct. Dibble all those wrens and suddenly there's no more left. Yeah, the only specimens of this wren that they have are ones that Tibbles brought back to the lighthouse keeper. Uh, this, uh, this does remind me of uh, you know, sort of maybe some adv uh, advice for uh, the listeners here. If you don't want your feline friend to be going out and killing all the birds there, uh, there is a, uh, a one thing that people have tried that is actually apparently kind of useful, and that's giving them uh, collars that are both colorful and noisy. I actually haven't seen any much information on that. Yeah, it's it's something people have been trying out, and apparently it's kind of working. So I'm I'm not I'm not saying it's been like proven for sure, but it's something that people are uh, you know that, that that folks are are saying has been working for them. So you know, give it a try. If it doesn't work, then uh, Ignore me. On my side, I feel like I should say there's a massive divide on pet owners about this, and I would probably get more hate mail for this than any other thing I would ever say on this podcast where we don't shy away from, you know, philosophy and politics. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I would say is keep your cats inside. Yeah. Putting your, letting your cat <laughs> outside 
is bad for the local environment, incredibly bad for the cat, and creates a feral cat population that lives short, depressing, disease-filled lives. And uh, well, let's try to avoid that. You know, we don't want more suffering in the world. Now, I had a, I had a bunch of, I had a bunch of like tidbits about invasive species that I probably just shouldn't sit here and read all of them. I did think it was interesting that um, uh, squirrels in parks were actually intentionally introduced in the late 1800s to amuse park visitors, huh. and for no other reason. We want to have little critters that we can watch out from a distance and they'll scream at us occasionally. Yeah, same, same. Hmm. But this this isn't necessarily something to do with invasive species, but I saw I came across this story a few years ago that I think just it underlines just how much impact these kinds of things have on local environments. And it's a way that you wouldn't normally think of it. That's that's why people were talking about it. It was this massive change that people didn't expect. And it came from reintroducing wolves into Yellowstone National Park in the late 1990s. Because mm-hmm. before that, wolves had been actively hunted. They, there was like a policy of removing wolves from the environment because they thought that natural predators like that were just a threat to people and livestock and things, which is spurious. And you, wolves are not a threat to livestock. It's silly. Yeah, it doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, this... This wolf is going to totally take down my cow. Oh, no. <clears throat> Even if it does, why did you put your cow where that wolf was? Yes. <laughs> That's kind of on you. So why don't you have, like, a fence? <laughs> yeah, the wolf was there or... first, should point out. Yeah. <laughs> so they wolves were basically extinct in Yellowstone for years and years and years. They reintroduced yeah. wolves in, in 1995. And several years later just the introduction of wolves into the environment had literally changed the course of rivers. Wow. How'd that happen? So because it was a apex predator species, which is something that ecologists had actually ignored, the, the general thought was you had to be careful about the low, stuff lower down on the food chain because that would propagate up. But, you know, if, you, mm-hmm. if an apex predator got taken out, that would have an effect on, like local wildlife there'd be more deers but everyone just thought you know just issue more hunting licenses take care of the local deer population keep it from you know overbreeding i suspect this this particular case has something to do with beavers some of it was beavers some of it was just uh where things like deers would walk because if you don't have predators in an environment, the deers have no reason to be careful around natural water sources. And so they'd walk around next to rivers and things and trample around the plants and just change where natural plant life and erosion would happen. Hmm. So introducing a predator into the environment made the prey animals change their behavior accordingly and so that changed where they fed and hung out that changed where the natural erosion of rivers and things would cause due to lack of plant life which actually made the rivers go back to some of their more natural courses that they had before the wolves were killed off neat so it's not even just be beavers definitely have a massive impact on the environment and the decimation of the beaver population in the 1800s for the hat trade also had massive implications to the local environments but you don't even need something that directly causes an effect on the rivers like a beaver dam 
Even the fact of deers eating plants in a different place can do this sort of thing to the environment. So it's just incredibly complex whenever you're trying to deal with a natural system like this. And I don't think it's something that even researchers anticipated because they, they, this was just a massive surprise to them. They didn't think that introducing a predator into the environment would do much of anything. They just wanted to put the wolves back because wolves you know, should have been there. Yeah, this is, uh, I guess, sort of a butterfly effect sort of thing, except without the time travel. Uh, yes. <laughs> not the butterfly effect needs time travel, but yeah, just referencing the movie. But anyway, the the yeah, yeah it's, it's sort of, you know, the, these little things have so many uh, side effects that are, uh, you, are very difficult to predict beforehand that sometimes, you know, kind of, you know, you, we try to uh, do something like big like this, it, you are kind of wandering wandering into unknown territory. So you have to be very careful and very mindful of things. And I did have a friend that basically wanted me to talk about how tribbles are somewhat based on aphids because there's a line where McCoy says that tribbles are basically born pregnant, which is something that actually happens with aphids. Uh, aphids are the uh, things ladybugs eat, right? Yes. They're small yes. plant-eating insects, and they... They employ a strategy that there's so there's like one of two things that something like the Tribbles could have as a like survival strategy, which is part of the fast breeding thing. Uh, either I think this is less likely, but either they could have something like aphids and a lot of other insects where they simply breed in such massive numbers that predators are overwhelmed and can't eat all of them. I, I could keep eating, but I don't want to. That's why there's such a massive like population boom in cicadas every few years. It's because they like time their reproductive cycle so that this massive number of cicadas all come out at the same time and the local bird population just can't eat all of them. The birds are satisfied, but you know, there's still plenty of more bugs around, so Yeah, happens with all kinds of things. The uh slightly more likely thing is that because the tribbles are completely dependent on local food in order to breed, it's probably they probably came from a very, very resource-scarce environment. And either it's just completely resource-scarce, and then, so anytime they come across food, they have to be ready to breed and exploit that food source immediately. Or yes. they're dependent on some sort of food source that goes through a reproductive cycle and they'd hit what's called a boom or bust period, which is something like lemmings do. Uh, if there's a mat large amount of like grains and natural foods around, lemmings just have this massive population explosion, which then leads to a massive population explosion of snowy owls. Yep. <laughs> and then you just have, you know, this massive amount of lemmings and snowy owls for a year or so. And then the food sources go down. Some of them die off because there's not enough food to support them. And they go back down into a bust cycle. It's a very uh, cyclical sort of structure there, assuming the uh, primary food source at the bottom of the food chain is uh, cyclical. That's also where the stupid thing about lemmings jumping off cliffs comes from. It's like, oh, we got to kill them all off or something like that. They're naturally doing it. No, no, no. There were so many lemmings during an explosion that they were like running along and the documentary film crew which was led by walt disney was filming the lemmings some of the there were so many lemmings being kind of scared by the film crew that some of them were getting kind of jostled off of a nearby cliff and walt disney just says sometimes lemmings jump off a cliff and kill themselves if there's too many of them based on nothing other than him filming this nature documentary that he just made for fun uh, in other words it's complete bullshit <laughs> yeah but Disney, <laughs> Disney did it. 
Damn you, Walt Disney! Well, that's all of the things that I had on Vase's species, which is fun. It's just done a lot. We've introduced way too many things, and they're killing off local stuff. It's uh, altering the environment irrevocably across the planet. But a lot of it in North America has basically been done. There's a few things like yeah. stop, stop buying ornamental Asian trees. Those are causing mm-hmm. an issue, especially in uh, drought areas like Arizona. A lot of things you wouldn't think of are like decorative plants. Uh, around uh, where I uh, live, uh, there's uh, some issue with some folks and bamboo. Uh, you know, suddenly it's like, okay, I buy a house and I start doing things. And suddenly there's bamboo all over the backyard. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> like, we don't want this here. We want like a normal sort of Midwestern yard experience. But somebody, you know, some point in the past uh, got in their head. That they wanted a single bamboo shoot here. And then suddenly it's everywhere. And so it takes them quite a while to uh, dig it all out and uh, take care of it. Because um, it's very, it, it very much likes to grow here. So yeah, don't introduce weed plants. Yeah, <laughs> though I don't understand on the bamboo. Like we don't farm bamboo locally, but it grows like nope. a weed, which it is. We import all of our bamboo. Bamboo is supposed to be this ecologically safe thing. That's why everything's being made of it. But we import all of it from Asia instead of just growing it like where you are, where it pops up like a weed. I don't understand yep. why. Well, uh, maybe that they're worried that it'll like take over like large sections of the area. <laughs> Possibly. It's like, well, we try to contain it. Oh no, it's like triffids. Oh god. <laughs> uh, another thing, uh, as far as invasive species goes, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the exact name of it, but there's like a, uh, a fish that was imported from Asia uh, that's uh, all up and down the Mississippi nowadays, and they've been uh, worried about it getting to the Great Lakes through the uh, Chicago River. Uh, and there's fear that might have already uh, done so, and which could, you know, basically, it's already kind of thro- totally thrown off the Mississippi ri- River, like, and all the rivers attached to it, which is a large section of the country, but uh, had been able to keep it out of the Great Lakes until maybe now. So that's maybe something to keep an eye out, guys. Yeah, as the climate starts to change, a lot of these species are spreading into places where they wouldn't normally. Mm-hmm. That's creating a weird issue. In fact, people are having this interesting debate about whether that counts as an invasive species sometimes. Like, uh, over here in New York, we're starting to get more and more house finches, which is a native bird, not like house sparrows. They just normally don't come here very often. It's not part of their natural range, but the hotter things are getting through the year the further north they're moving and the more often they're coming into new york which is not their normal habitat but they came here naturally so does that count as an invasive species or not humans are still kind of being the root cause of it in this case so sort of but it's also sort of situation where it's kind of forcing the entirety of the environment into a uh, general direction um so hypothetically it would also be pushing various critters uh that they might be trying to replace there uh, into a new environment on top of that but in some cases there's not going to be really places for them to go uh, either due to you know uh, geographical concerns say uh, northern africa when you're like in morocco and suddenly you're it's like oh we're trying to cross over into spain but some of us are not birds so um we're kind of stuck here guys hmm. it's just an interesting thing to think about because you need to just you need to come up with definitions that work for this kind of thing. And everyone wants something very simple, but when you're dealing with ecology, it's not. Yeah, some sort of displacement with a modifier or two terms or something like that. Yes. <laughs> Climate change uh, uh, 
crazy pants uh, displacement. There we go. So you said you had one or two things that weren't climate change and invasive species related. Well, they might be tangentially. So we, we talked about uh, uh, birds. We talked about critters. We talked about tribbles. What about the grain? Ah, the quadratriticales. Yes. So uh, uh, clearly this is some sort of genetically engineered crop, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so I figured we might want to you know, uh, dip into that a little bit. Uh, Hard so, check um, GMOs. Yes. <laughs> so uh, there is a lot of sort of uh, chatter in the uh, sort of uh, society and media and various other things about genetically uh, modified crops. And uh, I, I think it might be wise before getting into any of that to sort of break it into two general areas of things that people like to talk about. There's the actual science, uh, moving, you know, you know, you know, you know crossbreeding, moving genes, all that sort of stuff. And then there's the economics sort of, uh, you know, top level, how it's being used sort of stuff. And this, that, that second question, you know, talking about like Monsanto and how they're kind of a shitty company, that's maybe not something uh, that is very attached to this episode. We can also talk about it if we need be, but I wanted to sort of focus more on the first uh, uh, batch of things, if, if, if that's cool. Yeah. So uh, first off, um, I guess to a certain degree, we've been genetically engineering crops for quite some time, just you know, not in a very direct sort of fashion with uh, crossbreeds and things like that. Uh, you mentioned the, the uh, triticaline uh, stuff was already sort of a... Uh, a mix of uh, wheat and rye, correct? When someone says genetically engineered or genetically modified, you think of this like introducing retroviruses and messing with the plant's DNA and introducing bits of fish or something into the thing. But oftentimes it's not nearly that invasive. <laughs> yeah, it's not very invasive. A lot of it is like there is some actual like gene editing and stuff being done now more so than there used to be. But a lot of it is just like here's two species of grain that normally aren't genetically close enough to be able to crossbreed and we tweaked it a little bit so that now they are so you, you can sort of break in uh, up uh, the sort of genetic engineering into sort of three sort of groups uh, of t uh, sorts here uh, you got your subgenic which is basically you're messing with things of the same species entirely so you're sort of encouraging one trait over another uh, cisgenic which is bringing sort of two close uh, things uh, that, uh, together a little bit uh, that are they're very closely related. Uh, and then you got uh, transgenic, which is uh, a little, things a little bit further apart. Uh, so things in the same uh, kingdom, but not like, you know, not your wheat and rye, but more your wheat and apples, <laughs> uh, which I'm not sure what that would be, but I don't think anyone is trying to do that. I'm just sort of coming up with a <laughs> random example. Anyway. <laughs> Um, but, uh, the various things that, uh, folks are trying to sort of push there is of course, uh, increasing yields, which is the, uh, most commonly sort of, uh, uh, seen a bit as far as pe people talking about this sort of stuff. So you have, uh, grains and corn and other, you know, things that are, that are able to produce much more usable, uh, bits of, uh, uh plant matter that we can, you know, then ingest or eat or feed to animals that they can eat or you use in some sort of chemical processing, whatever. Uh, and so that means we can produce a lot more crops in uh, per arable land uh, compared to what we had with the more uh, natural, uh, uh, you know, naturally occurring versions. Um, there, but there's also other things like increasing its uh, uh, photosynthesis uh, sort of uh, you know, output. So you're able to actually uh, you know, like double or triple the amount of uh, CO2 a plant is able to process. And this, of course, 
you know, generally make the plant uh, probably a little bit bigger, but also, you know, if you're say trying to fight global warming by removing more CO2, that might be some, something useful there. Um, so, but you can also add more crazy things like bioluminescence, of course. So you have your, your, your corn that glows in the dark, which is kind of crazy, but you know, <laughs> but uh, I don't think anyone's done that yet, but it's, it's something people might. I do remember like one of the very earliest examples of genetic engineering that I was seeing when I was a kid was like adding frost resistance and. But uh, yeah, yeah, the uh, but yeah, the frost resistance is one thing. But one of the things that sort of uh, leads into a lot of the more economic side of stuff is uh, uh, plants that are resistant to herbicides and uh, insects. So they are uniquely designed to not react to certain chemicals or are hostile to you know uh, insects trying to eat them, uh, which makes means they are more uh, you know, capable of being sort of. Uh, controlled as far as their growth goes and you lose less uh, crops to, you know, uh, weeds taking over their food sources and things like that. And so you uh, are able to overall sort of create uh, more plants that are going to survive more uh, and, uh, and uh, increase crop, uh, 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 total uh, uh, crop output uh, for the same amount of land, uh, which means you can feed more people, uh, and then you can, you know, you know, on the same amount of land, which means potentially you don't have to clear as much land for feeding the 7 billion people we got on the planet right now, uh, which, you know, you know sounds like a good uh, thing. Of course, there's also the, you know, the uh, controversies on, you know, is this stuff safe? And that's a whole other can of worms, uh, which I don't think we not quite have enough time to go into today. But I will generally say that uh, I tend to trust the scientists on this end of things, that there is has been uh, uh, several incidences where somebody who didn't have all their data in, uh, ordered up, who's gone and, and made all sorts of outrageous claims that got people all freaked out and then caused sort of uh, serious, uh, uh, serious backlash against uh, genetically modified crops and led to all sorts of nonsense down the road. Um, I will say that I'm not going to 100% defend all scientists who work on this sort of stuff, but I will say that there is generally much more fear mongering going on about it than there is reason, you know, reason to have. Oh, yeah, we don't have a lot of time to go into all of the thing. I'll say, like, modifying something genetically is not really going to do anything unless you genetically modified it to where it was, like, now poisonous. It wouldn't really do much. I think that's something to actually check into. Yeah, which they tra check. Like, you could alter its, you know, nutritional value which is actually mm -hmm. something we do already because we have been breeding plants for their homogeneity and ability to ship easily more so than flavor or health value for years and years and years. Yep. So the stuff you're eating now has already been bred and modified in order to be nice and round so that they can ship it without it bruising and it tastes horrible and you know isn't very good for you just you, if you have not go to your local farmers market in the summer and get yourself a heirloom tomato and compare the difference between that and one of your overbred genetically modified tomatoes, and you'll never want to eat one of those again. And it's not because one's you know, you know, specifically genetically modified. It's that the, the one that uh, tastes better is you know, is not been modified in particular ways. Yeah. To, yeah. So it's sort of you know, side effects. Uh, maybe I should uh, try more vegetables from a farmer's market because I just have no luck with stuff all the, <laughs> from the supermarket. Uh, but yeah, it's like the super taster. So <laughs> I'll say so the little label on food that says GMO free, 
uh, not actually checked into, certified, or backed by anything. So meaningless 100% marketing tactic that's going to add like 15% markup to anything you buy with it. Yeah. So uh, kind of if you are worried about that, that's not going to help you at all for one. And so you can just sort of not care until, you know, you know, there's anything else that can give you more information on that or, you know, go to the farmer's market instead. The only argument that I've heard for why you should think about these things outside of the way it's being used to lock down on like farmers ability to grow crops which is something that we aren't listening to in the health hysteria side of stuff Mm -hmm. and we should be the only particular environmental argument i've heard from this that i would like more information on is if you create a grain crop which is basically based on a grass all grain crops are a a you know modified and overbred form of grass super grass so you plant that in the field and it pollinates and then spreads and maybe cross-pollinates with some kind of wild Mm -hmm. native grass next to it then you've got some sort of genetically modified other grass that's now you know resistant to insects and herbicides and And now out there and just sort of growing and well suddenly you got this new weed that's kind of popping up everywhere no one can take any to take it out oh no yeah which you know that's something to look into (laughs) but generally we probably need to start looking into and changing how we grow food overall because our massive monoculture crops are horribly susceptible to genetic diseases or blights Um, it's going to flat out cause major food shortages and it's all done so that a few corporations can own most of the food and push out small farmers which uh, if you look at it from a purely data perspective uh, if you have the same amount of land being Uh, cultivated by a bunch of small farmers as opposed to one massive corporation that owns a bunch of small farms you actually get more food better food and a larger variety of food more care is put into each effort yeah but also like you know individual farmers can say well i'm going to grow this one thing in a small quantity that wouldn't be worth a major corporation growing Mm you know but it's worth it to me as an independent to be able to make that and fill this small hole in the market because I don't have to put as much investment capital into growing it so it can still be profitable. So you can sort of uh, have a a niche market here, which then means that when things uh, fail for the more common items, you are able to maintain yourself as a farmer for one, but also people are also able to eat because you have something different that they can eat now. Yeah, but Monsanto being a horrible corporation that has our government in its pocket and everyone ignores because farming is boring is like a topic we should probably devote more time to later. Yes, so uh, hopefully we'll uh, find a good jumping off point for that. Yeah, though the moral implications of terraforming are kind of interesting, just to touch on very briefly, because they're suggesting that they have to terraform this planet which actually gets into a lot of your state of nature arguments that you have from like Hobbes and Kant, who mm-hmm. were defining kind of nature as unproductive land. And they specifically say that they need to cultivate the planet to be productive efficiently. So basically you have a planet and apparently it's a habitable planet, but it's just sitting there. It's not doing anything for anyone. And we must acquire it, yeah. Acquire it and conquer it and make it grow food. Otherwise, it's completely useless 
to everyone. And the Klingons will take it then, and we don't want that. Oh no. <laughs> Which I think we've touched on this before, but I do think that especially as more and more people talk about like terraforming mars which is probably not super viable technologically right now but anyway everybody keeps going on about it but you have to actually think about what are the moral implications of taking an entire planet and turning it into something that happens to be useful to you but you know you've just changed the entire planet because you want it to be more useful to you as a human. Mm-hmm. And even, so. like, you could say maybe there's microscopic organisms on Mars, which seems somewhat likely, but even if you ignore, you know, life, do we consider life being on something the prerequisite for it being useful the way it is? If life forms don't live there, we're free to change it however we want? What are the, you know, how are we actually drawing the lines here? Uh, I guess to a certain degree, you know, there is, uh, this is a, a sort of a, a wider question than just Mars then. Uh, you, know, you, you know, you can talk about asteroids, you can talk about even mining on Earth and things like that, where, we, you know, that we are going into places, parts of the planet that, you know, generally don't have much of the way of life, but we are introducing to, our, uh, to those locations uh, in uh, an environment that is now you know, human sustainable in order to extract resources. Uh, yeah, you're altering things in order to make them more amenable for humans. Mm-hmm. And we've always kind of drawn a line at like how much does this inconvenience other life forms. We've never really thought of it as should we be changing this environment overall. I don't really have an answer to that, but it's a moral line that I think we ignore. Just sort of, yeah, just never thought about <laughs> Uh, I guess maybe uh, to uh, some degree we could uh, try to set up as a an either or situation. Uh, let's say we have Mars and we have Earth, and we could terraform Mars and move ev- every single human being to Mars. Would that be a and, and then leave Earth to be wild and to grow and be on its own and uh, recover from all the crap we've done to it? Uh, would that be a morally acceptable uh, uh, situation? It depends on what you think of. Like, what counts as a human thing? This gets down to this kind of weird line (laughs) that we never actually draw, which is what actually is natural. We want to say that a bunch of stuff that we do is unnatural, but humans are part of the environment. We are a natural creature. We didn't come to Earth from somewhere else. And uh, when we leave the Earth and leave it to its own devices, suddenly all our uh, uh, cattle are gone and they're... they're, uh, and, uh, you know, that's going to change the, the environment on Earth massively on that alone. Um, but, like, how much do you have to do? Like, there's species of ants that have farms. There's birds that create apartment complexes. Termites create massive earth mounds that alter their own local environment. Beavers change rivers and create artificial lakes. And, and deer, you know, cause all sorts of trouble there. Yeah. Well, yeah, what do we do that is so different that we decide that what we do is unnatural when what a beaver does is natural? Yeah, you know, what, you know and uh, you know, and and here the the natural versus unnatural is sort of being uh, framed at a as a good versus evil sort of dichotomy too. We often do that, yeah. but even if you take like life out of the equation, like I was saying, let's say you terraform Mars and you've now introduced a new weather cycle, and that begins like erosion of olympus mons and now you have started to degrade the tallest mountain in the solar system is that something that you should have considered before you did this thing um 
I'd say yes. There but... was no life form living there, but you've you know altered a unique thing in the universe. And that uh, that uh, uh, you know, Valis Marineris there, the uh, the big uh, canyon. Yeah, that's going to no longer be quite the same anymore. And you melt the uh, you know the, all the ice there, and uh, you're going to create some little lakes and things like that. And that's going to cause all sorts of issues there as well. And yeah, it's going to be a very different place. But it's, it's never going to be quite the same. The natural beauty will be you know replaced by a different sort of unnatural beauty. If this uh, sort of argument is being made here, yeah, and it's de- it's just something to consider that. Yeah, very few people are. <laughs> so maybe it's something we should, you know, make homework and think about for a while. Ah, well, there's at least two terraforming episodes of Next Gen whenever we get to those. So. And then don't forget uh, Star Trek Two. Ah, uh, yes, that's a that's <laughs> a big one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look at us. We found morality in trouble with tribbles. Yep. <laughs> Took us a while, but we got there. Well, now that we've finished playing Find the Moral Questions in the cute, fun, disposable episode, I think it's time to play the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome to the game show portion of the show where we all our contestants have been competing all episode to uh, you know, show us what they got to get some points and to generally win us over. And so we got our winners for this week. The first winner is Cyrano Jones for he gets the uh, he gets the terrible economics award, you see, for selling a critter that reproduces faster than he can sell them and thus kind of making his whole marketing scheme kind of pointless and perhaps a little self-defeating. What does he win, Kepwin? Serno Jones wins the capitalism must really be dead in this future award because no one would think that's a good idea. Uh, here's some, uh, here's, yeah, so, uh, so I guess that means he gets a copy of Adam Smith, except it's bronzed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Our second award is the Berserker Button Award, which goes to Scotty, who's totally cool until just the right level of insult of about the Enterprise is, is achieved. What does he win, Gepwin? Scotty wins Star Trek's Golden Gloves, which I think is a sports award for boxing, because he's done the only competent fighting we've seen in this entire show. Yep. Scotty, you can really pack a punch. Glad you're on our side. Once again, I guess he's proving himself to be the most competent person in the ship still. Hmm. Our third award is the Cosmic Muppet Award, which goes to all those tribbles for just being so dang adorable. What do they win, Gapwin? The Trebles win one of those little yappy dog toys that does backflips that they used to have at FAO Schwartz before that shut down because a walking wind-up dog toy is what the things are made of. Hmm. Those are kind of adorable too, yes. Hmm. I think they have a kindred spirit. Our final award is the Face-Off Award, which goes to Darwin for his surgery to make him look human, which I hear is quite painful, uh... Uh, you know, but it doesn't quite cover the smell or whatever the tribbles are picking up on, I guess. So, uh, what, what does he win? Darwin wins some sort of award for just being the moral core of something that they deal with in, like, two seasons of Star Trek Discovery later on that was surprisingly introduced as a throwaway joke in the comedy episode of original series. Uh, we have a little wait, ways to wait until before we get to that bit of thing. So I guess we'll have to tune in. You'll have to tune in then, eh? Hmm. Yes, because I I I'd completely forgotten that that was something that they got from Trouble with Tribbles. 
and it's <laughs> horrific when they do it in Discovery. So uh, I guess uh, wait for the the the, the terror later. Yes. Hmm. Thank you, Gepwin, and uh, thank you to our all contestants. You've been uh, beautiful today, just beautiful, and and kind of adorable with your purring over there, Mister Triple. Uh, take it away, Gepwin. I hope that they all enjoyed our slightly more ambiguous awards this week. And thank you all for joining us on the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey, Gap One. Yes? Are, are we going to be playing Dungeons and Dragons next week? Probably, because... I forgot to look up what the next episode is going to be. <laughs> uh, the the game master of uh, game masters of Treskelion. Okay, so I mean not Dungeons and Dragons because that's the DM. All the other ones use GM. True, true. Or game master. <laughs> World of Darkness has storyteller, but it's basically the same thing, you know. I kind of wonder if this is at all related to the Chessmen of Mars. I have no idea. It's so part of the John Carter of Mars books written by uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs. Maybe I should pick up one of those at some point. They are amazingly old and campy. Sometimes I need that. <laughs> In fact, I've been reading a lot of campy stuff recently, but not really science fiction or old. Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> hey, faceless gladiators and such. This does sound like it's based on Chessmen of Mars. We'll have I to see. Think- I think we'll. Uh, I think this might be one of the ones where the uh, the big fight music comes in again. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. Well, claimed for gladiators and they, this will be fun. We get to talk about Rome and the moral ambiguity of blood sports. Hooray! They're gonna punch each other and stab each other, and everyone's gonna die except our our victor here, and then we get some thumbs. Yep. Yeah. This is uh, this is gonna be a dark one. Well, maybe we can uh, brighten it up. Um, maybe we'll figure out a way to talk about kittens. Again. Hopefully, <laughs> we'll have to see how badly they handle this. But you can figure out whether we talk about blood sports or kittens next week on Watches of Tomorrow. Next time on Watches of Tomorrow, roll initiative. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>